This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our guest today is Shailesh Rao, Vice President of Asia-Pacific, the Americas and Emerging Markets for Twitter. Shailesh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Lots of people woke up to the power of and potential of Twitter during the Arab Spring, uh, which some people call the Twitter revolution, uh, in view of the political changes that it brought about. In your experience, what has been the most dramatic demonstration of Twitter's power? It's a very difficult question to answer because uh, having the privilege of being inside Twitter, we see examples of the usage of the platform that are so diverse, um, really from all parts of the world, and even uh, outside of the Earth, because we've seen astronauts tweet uh, from space, and we've seen Mars rover tweet from Mars. So it's a very difficult question to answer. I would go back to a story that for me in my early time at Twitter was um, the most powerful. I had traveled to uh, Rio de Janeiro in the process of helping the company establish its presence in Brazil. And I was interviewing uh, Brazilians who were uh, power users of Twitter. And I I met one uh, young man uh, who lived in a favela. A favela is the uh, Brazilian name for uh, slum. Right. And uh, this boy told me the story of uh, uh, using Twitter. At that time, I think maybe he was 14 or 15, and he was actually 12 when he used Twitter for the first time to communicate with the outside world the military exercises that were being conducted in the favelas and what he was seeing. And uh, unfortunately, at times, some of the um, uh, poor physical treatment of people in the favelas in the process of trying to use the military to clean them up from uh, uh, drug trafficking. And this young boy using the power of Twitter became the voice of all worldwide media and news services as to what was actually happening inside the favelas during this military program. And his voice became so prominent that the government had to pull back and rethink the program to come up with an approach that was uh, more considerate of the community and its uh, members. Um, and he was only 12 years old, I believe, at the time, if I'm thinking correctly. So just the uh, opportunity to meet this young man who was so young, living, uh, and I met him close to his favela, his home, and having him tell the story about how someone so young Uh, living in poor circumstances, could have such a powerful voice, was an amazing reminder of what Twitter's all about, this democratization of access to a platform that allows anyone in the world who just simply has a, a mobile phone and access to SMS to have a voice and be heard. And then, of course, the ability for people to hear that voice and take action and and uh, galvanize a movement around something that either needs to be promoted further or needs to be stopped. Since that time, he's gone on to become the flag bearer for the country of Brazil at the Summer Olympics two years ago. Uh, He's gone on to now become something of a TV celebrity. Uh, He's maybe 16, 17 years old now. So it's been also wonderful to see his own personal journey in uh, building his confidence and economically being able to lift himself and his family, uh, uh, you know, increasingly out of poverty. That's such a great example of 
there's so many ways in which I, I see Twitter being a force for good. Uh, I mean, for me, the most dramatic ex example of that recently was after the Sydney uh, terrorist attacks, when the whole movement, the I'll ride with you movement, took shape in response to the terrorist attacks. But sometimes the opposite also tends to happen, where uh, the crowd seems to turn against some unsuspect, some poor victim. Um, in public shaming or harassment. There was a story in the New York Times magazine just recently about that. Uh, what is Twitter's policy about such incidents? And when if, uh, when, when does Twitter intervene in such situations? Well, it should. I want to make it clear that, as with any um, technology service, we have terms and conditions that govern what is appropriate use of the platform by our users. And when we see people who incite violence, uh, offer hate speech, uh, impersonate, these are all uh, violations of our terms and service. And through the power of the community on Twitter, when they submit complaints that uh, reveal usage or behavior that violates our terms and conditions, we take appropriate action. So Twitter is not an environment that is completely um, without rules. There are terms and conditions that govern usage. And I think our CEO has said more recently that it's an important objective for him to bring more civil discourse to the platform. Um, as with any platform or any tool, you'll always have misuse. Luckily, if you believe as I do, as an optimist, that more people are good than bad, uh, the majority of uses of the platform are really inspiring, uplifting, and ultimately productive for society. Um, but in the few cases where we've had issues, we have rules uh, that govern the usage of the platform, and we use those rules to take proper action, in some cases which can rem be involve us removing users. Can you give an example of a time when you had to intervene? Well, it's hard to, to give you a specific example, but uh, I can tell you that we get requests all the time from our users saying this is an impersonation account. This is not, in fact, the individual that they claim to be. And in those instances, we've removed those users from the platform or those accounts from the platform. So it's something that's ongoing. It's every day. We get communications from our users from around the world about various accounts and incidents. And so it's hard to just cite one. Uh, and as a policy matter, I think it's, it's more important to talk about it at the policy level and, and, inf and remind people um, that civil discourse on Twitter is something we strongly hope for and encourage, and that we have terms and conditions and rules that, that try to create proper boundaries. How many users does Twitter have now, and in which parts of the world is it growing fastest? Well, uh, that's a bit of a complicated question because today, if we look at today's Twitter, we have over 280 million monthly active users using the platform around the world. We have over 500 million people uniquely who visit the Twitter service. They may not be logged in, but they're using the service. They may have done a search on Google, <clears throat> seen something on television, and come to Twitter to explore that content further. And then we also have um, one billion unique mobile devices that we touch with uh, 
our Mopub exchange uh, service. Mopub is the largest mobile ad exchange in the world and touches one billion unique mobile devices. So depending upon which perspective you have on Twitter, we touch anywhere from over 280 million to north of a billion people through the various services that we provide. Especially in emerging markets, uh, people access Twitter uh, primarily through mobile phones. H how has the Twitter app uh, uh, been optimized for mobile use? Well, uh, just to correct you, we're not only in emerging markets, we're a mobile service. Right. Uh, we were designed from its very inception with SMS as the um, design uh, context. Uh, that's why we have 140 characters as the constraint for the Twitter message, allowing the remaining 20 characters for your username, Twitter handle. Uh, that was when Jack Dorsey designed it. He had SMS in mind. Today, over 80% of our users access the service over mobile. Over 80% of our revenue comes from uh, mobile uh, advertising. So we're a mobile service, not just in emerging markets, but around the world. You're correct, obviously, that in the emerging markets, uh, most likely our principal and first interaction with the user will be over a mobile device. And um, as in someone who is responsible for working across international markets, I I'm very proud of the fact that we see usage of the service across so many countries in the world, primarily over mobile devices. Now, since you referred to uh, you know people watching television uh, while also tweeting, uh, there's actually some interesting research at Wharton uh, where we we we, we talk just about this, uh, where, where we refer to the fact that Twitter is often used by people as a second screen when they watch television. Uh, do you see any advertising potential here? Because the research we published. Uh, recently said that second screening can distract people from actually clicking through to buy something in some cases. So how do you create a seamless experience for advertisers and one that can lead to a sale? So we've actually done research in-house that shows the opposite, um, that shows that when you uh, monitor, what we did is we actually outfitted um, an audience with sensors and track their emotional state, their perspiration, their heart rate, uh, to measure the level of engagement. And one group was given their mobile device with access to Twitter and could watch a sporting event with free access to Twitter. Another group, a control group, was allowed to watch the same sporting event but was not allowed to have access to their Twitter service during the match. What we found systematically was that the audience that was watching television, watching the match, and had access to Twitter and was using Twitter to engage audiences in a conversation about the program were significantly more engaged in the program itself uh, than the audience that was not allowed to provide access. So while on the face of it, it seems that people may be distracted because they're looking at their phones, in fact, what's happening in our research suggests that people are much more emotionally and intellectually engaged with what's happening uh, on the television screen because they're talking about it. They're trying to formulate opinions, react and respond to others' opinions, uh, perhaps offer observations about what's being watched. So they're processing in a much deeper way what it is they're watching and observing. Now, coming to the f other part of your question, what is Twitter? Twitter is essentially a platform that enables a very specific kind 
of communication and exchange, which is real-time, public, and conversational. There's no other platform in the world that allows you to have a conversation and exchange in either publishing or consuming content with those three attributes. So it's natural when you think about that, that Twitter becomes a companion to television. Because when something's happening on television, your instinct is to have a conversation in real time about what it is you're experiencing or watching. This extends beyond television to really any phenomenon in life. When something happens in the real world, we talk about it on Twitter. And so it becomes a companion to your life and a window into the things that are going on around you. It just so happens that television is one of the most um, mainstream examples of that because so many people watch television around the world. We also see a significant commercial opportunity in this phenomenon. You also asked about that. Uh, we have a feature, for example, called TV targeting, which allows advertisers to target audiences that are talking about a particular television show and then introduce the brand into the conversation. So a very uh, logical example of this would be if you're a company that's advertising on television during a certain program, you also want to extend your advertising to Twitter to the audiences that are talking about that program and presumably watching that program. So now your advertising is able to cover audiences across television and Twitter in an integrated cross-media fashion. That leads to... Uh you know, a question that I was about to ask about your uh, uh, advertising approach. So uh, Twitter's first, fourth quarter revenues grew 97% uh, to 479 million dollars, which was much higher than analysts had predicted. Uh, how was this achieved? And can you give examples of companies that are using Twitter to build their brands? There's so many examples from around the world. But the fundamental reason that we're seeing this kind of success on the revenue side is because the product works. Um, we observe that the average advertising campaign on Twitter is seeing anywhere from a 3 to 4% engagement rate. That means that of the people who see an advertisement on Twitter, 3 to 4% are engaging with that ad in some way, shape, or fashion. Either they're replying, retweeting, um, clicking on a link, watching a video, something that indicates some form of interaction with the advertisement. To put that in context, 3 to 4% engagement rate is 30 to 40 times better than traditional digital advertising, which normally enjoys about a 0.1% uh, engagement or click-through rate. Why are we seeing that kind of success? I think we're seeing that kind of success because our advertising approach mirrors where we are today as a society. Um, users want relevant content as advertising. As a result, the distinction between advertising and content is going away, and all that really matters to a user, whether it comes from an advertiser or comes from another source, what I really want is relevancy. And so we have algorithms that are able to uh, look at who you follow and those accounts on Twitter that you find most uh, valuable and use that to make sure that the advertisements you see are the most relevant to you. Secondly, we, the service allows for what I would call mutual respect. Traditional media has been broadcast. Broadcast implies one way. I mentioned before that one of the defining characteristics of Twitter is that it allows for conversation. 
And this ability to have a two-way dialogue has two interesting effects. The most obvious one is it allows the audience to respond. But the more subtle one, which I think is more powerful, is it forces accountability on the part of the brand, which means they're more authentic and genuine. As a brand, if you're going to talk to an audience that you know can respond, the likelihood that what you say is true and authentic is much, much higher. So this is why I think we're seeing our advertising approach really working. And that, of course, leads directly to revenue success. There are so many examples of companies that have done amazing work on the platform. Uh, a few that come to mind, I'll cite during the World Cup last year, some amazing examples of work by Coca-Cola around the world. Coca-Cola um, uh, created what we would call a live studio war room to make sure that as the matches were unfolding during the World Cup, their conversation on Twitter could incorporate the real-time information so that the conversation Coke was having with this audience could be relevant and timely. Um, they did this in Brazil, they did this in Mexico, they did this in Japan, they did this in the United States. Great example. We've seen other wonderful examples of companies like American Express mm -hmm. offering promotions from their merchants that automatically get deposited on your American Express card if you reply through Twitter. Um, Starbucks offering $5 coupons through Twitter. If you respond to the Starbucks Twitter account, again, it gets made available to you when you go into the store and buy. So really, whether it's driving sales with some retail examples that I just provided you, or brand experiences where you're burnishing the brand and building strong associations like with Coca-Cola during the World Cup, uh, we see wonderful examples of companies around the world doing really, really interesting work uh, on the platform. How would you compare Twitter's advertising approach to that of other social media platforms, say like Facebook? It's hard to compare, you know, I. I I don't see inside of Facebook what their strategy is and how they're thinking, so it's hard for me to comment in that regard. But I can say what we're really focused on, as I said before, is making sure that any kind of advertising is not just relevant to the advertiser, but also relevant to the user. In that sense, we view advertising as content, and we want to make sure that the content is meaningful. A lot of people talk about native advertising, so another distinguishing feature of Twitter's advertising is that you'll see the promotions in the timeline or the stream of content that you review in Twitter. It's not off to the side. By putting it in the core timeline, we take on the responsibility with the advertiser to make sure it's as relevant, if not more so, than the rest of information in your timeline on Twitter. And the third point is we're mobile. That's what we are. Uh, over 80% of our revenue comes from uh, people viewing ads on mobile devices. So I think when you, if you were to come inside Twitter and, and hear how the teams talk, we talk and think mobile first because we're a mobile company. So I'd say these are some of the ways that we distinguish ourselves. The last one is that um, for a long time there has been a uh, narrative that's been developed that digital is fighting traditional media, that digital's gains are traditional media's losses. I think Twitter bucks that narrative. We see ourselves as an amplifier. We amplify traditional media, and thereby we believe that we make traditional media better, and we're a natural partner for traditional media. This is why we have such deep relationships with the NFL, the NBA, ESPN, 
the ICC Cricket Authority, IPL in India, and others, Japanese high school baseball in Japan, because traditional media providers, television broadcasters, for example, they understand that for them it's strategic not only to capture mindshare during the broadcast on television, but to also capture mindshare during the conversation about their programming on Twitter. So that, I think, is also a big differentiating feature for us, is we see ourselves as a natural partner and a partner that can make traditional media better. So when you think of traditional media uh, and social media, and, and, and I really appreciate the way you examine the relation between the two, uh, what, is, what in your mind is the most important metric to focus on? Uh, I've seen a lot of people focus on how many Twitter followers they have. Uh, is that really important, or is it the number of people who retweet your content, the metric to focus on? Well, different metrics are important for different situations, and different companies um, have different KPIs. But if I had to boil it down to one thing, again, I would say engagement rate. Because if you know your audience is engaged with what you're publishing and what you're saying, everything else will take care of itself. Everything else is downstream from that. Uh, so Evan Williams uh, recently remarked that Wall Street doesn't get Twitter. Uh, do you agree with him? What, what do you wish Wall Street understood about Twitter? Well, I, I, you know, when you are working in a company that's offering a new technology service to a new market or a new population of users. Your job, first and foremost, is ultimately education. So all of us inside the company, including myself, see ourselves as evangelists or educators to help the world understand how to get the most value out of Twitter, whether you're a user, an advertiser, or another kind of partner. And I can just say inside the company, we worry about what we have control over. And what we have control over is building great products for users and advertisers, listening to our stakeholders to make sure we are making the service the best that it can be, and making sure that our employees are happy and productive and enjoy the culture they're a part of. As long as we do that and we stay focused on the goals that we have, we'll be fine. Whatever may be happening you know, as noise in the outside world, We've re remained committed to a strategy we put in place a long time ago, and we're just executing against that strategy. And we're very excited about the progress that we're making. And uh, you know, I think uh, you know, over the years or over a longer time horizon, uh, it'll become more clear for those who may not be so clear uh, about where Twitter's going and what we're trying to do. So since I, let me quote one other person, who, Mark Cuban, who recently described Twitter as, the best search engine, bar none, to get current information. Now, in view of your previous role at Google, I wonder if you agree with him. And what makes Twitter different for someone looking for information than Google? Well, both are great companies. I have a lot of respect for Google and what they did. I spent a long time there. Um, you know, Google did a great job indexing the web. And the web was essentially, at that time, a series of uh, pages on, uh, that were that had relatively dynamic content, uh, but but Twitter, in a sense, indexes the web directly down to the individuals who are publishing that content, and because of the format being 140 characters, we have an ability to capture 
real-time information. So the dynamism and the flavor of what people are able to access on Twitter has a humanistic feel and a, and a very dynamic real-time feel. And I think that's a special quality of Twitter. Again, public, conversational, and, and real-time. So both provide, you know, obviously valuable services, but for Twitter, what we're excited about when we think about one of our aspirations is that you know, everybody on the planet is able to get value and use Twitter. When that happens, think about what the net result of that is. In essence, we would then be able to have a view into the pulse of the planet and the moods and the thoughts and the feelings, the aspirations and the anxieties of human beings around the world. It's almost like we're tapping into the collective consciousness of humankind and being able to see it reflected back to us. I think that's pretty exciting, not only because it allows us to consume great content in the moment and connect in a very human way with people who share common interests, but also when we pull back from that experience, the opportunity with academic institutions like Wharton and the University of Pennsylvania or others to analyze that information and say, what does it tell us about the world? I think is very, very exciting. We already have examples of companies that have come to us and told us, pharma companies that have said, you know, we, we were able to discover a side effect of a drug that no clinical trial was able to reveal. We learned that one of our drugs was causing headaches and we were able to do it because we analyzed the conversation on Twitter about our drug and we would see that people were citing this repeatedly. And we were able to improve our drug and eliminate that side effect. Um, so it gives you just one small example of, of how you might imagine um, you know, different companies and organizations leveraging this insight into the kind of collective consciousness of the world to make things better for people. Uh, and I think that prospect is quite exciting. I have a couple of uh, final questions about your personal leadership journey. So if you were to think back on your career, what would you say is the biggest leadership challenge you ever faced? And how did you overcome it? And what did you learn from it? Wow. Um, I've faced a lot over time. It's hard to pick one that's sort of the most of anything. Um, I'd also say that you know I'm too young to be thinking about writing memoirs, so I, I, I don't have a ready rank order list for you. But um, you know certainly you can pick uh, anyone. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd certainly say that two come to mind, uh, which were at my in. Well, I'll talk about a couple, okay? Because uh, they're they're different and perhaps they're relevant to different people. So when I arrived in India to run Google for for uh, in India. Uh, I wasn't aware at how much a lack of understanding there was at this time, this is 2007, about how the internet functioned and uh, its role in, in that society, that culture. And for the first year that I was there, while I was there to build a business, uh, I realized that my job very quickly became sort of ambassador of Google in India to fundamentally educate and explain and provide a perspective on what Google's role for users in India could be, and thereby more broadly for the Indian society. So the amount of time I spent with government officials, with um, law enforcement officials, with educators, with uh, leaders in civil society, to play this kind of role 
was surprising to me. I didn't realize that that would be something that was required a priori. I thought I'd simply come in and Google's Google and we would build our business and get great content on the, on, on the different products of Google, sell advertising and, and move forward. So that's when it really highlighted for me, as I mentioned earlier, the important role of being an educator and pr providing a translation function between the people who sit in Silicon Valley who think that you just build products and people automatically use them and corners of the world and society where there's friction and there's some information asymmetries that need to be addressed so that everyone can take advantage of these technologies and you don't end up with a digital divide, you end up with inclusion and empowerment. Um, so I faced a lot of these challenges when content would be uploaded to YouTube and Google would be accused of publishing that content because people didn't understand that open platforms allow for anyone to publish content. So just the concept of an open publishing platform took a lot of explanation. Uh, second leadership challenge, so this, this understanding of needing to communicate with the outside world and being the voice that translates intention, motivation, and benefit in a way that all stakeholders feel comfortable is a critical component of being a great leader. You can't just lock yourself in your office, focus on your products, sit inside, and, and not care about the world around you because ultimately you need the world to accept you to be successful. So engagement is critical. A second kind of evolution in my career, and I think some will face this in their career, is moving from providing leadership when you have direct access to the people that you lead, an immediate team that may be in your office or within close reach, sort of an intimate form of leadership, which feels deeply engaging. There's a lot of positive validation immediately when things go well. You can immediately identify problems and address them. Transitioning to a different kind of leadership, which is just distributed or remote leadership. How do you uh, impose an agenda or uh, enforce uh, a set of parameters on teams that may be thousands of miles away from you operating in offices that you may only get to visit once or twice a year? How do you do that? How do you run an organization and still have the same kind of impact even if you physically can't be there. And that was a long learning process when I moved from running India to running Asia Pacific uh, for Google, and then now at Twitter, you know, running a broad swath of international markets, everything from Brazil to Russia to Australia and everything in between. It takes a tremendous amount of clarity on what, what is important, repeated communication of that prioritized list of objectives, and the use of remote communication tools to stay engaged uh, with people, and then creating structures that ensure that the various relevant voices and pockets of the organization have access, so you don't end up in a bubble and an echo chamber of people just telling you what you want to hear. So it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of preparation, it takes a lot of structure, it takes commitment to com communication, all anchored by clarity of purpose and prioritization. Um, but very rewarding in the end when you can have that kind of impact at scale. What role does yoga and meditation 
play in your life and how does that inform your management style? Significant. Just to broaden out for that a moment, I'll come back to it. I actually am a big believer that you can only grow as a professional, as a human being, as a leader, if you make yourself available to moments of serendipity, uh, sort of tangential or nonlinear thoughts, ideas, views. So reading good fiction, meeting interesting people for coffee, traveling, and you know, pursuing your hobbies, all of these things can help you in unintended ways. A quick example would be, before I, I moved to India and started working overseas, I read Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Now it's famous because Obama sort of adopted it as his informal textbook, but I adopted it in 2007 when I was traveling to India, and it, I just was reading it because, you know, one of my degrees is in history, and that's still a passion of mine. Um, but its power as a tool for management and leadership and its influence on the way I handled issues I talked about in terms of how do you help a society evolve towards something new? How do you manage change? Ultimately, that book was about managing change. It was so powerful. And if I just didn't pick up that book out of interest, not because I intended to read it to make myself a better manager, but simply out of interest, I would never have benefited from that insight. Now, coming back to yoga, I think yoga is very powerful. To me, to even call yoga an interest or a hobby is sort of underappreciating what it is. To me, yoga is really in its ultimate form, uh, form of life, is a lifestyle. And uh, it's pursued as a recognition by those who do it that um, you can be the best person that you want to be professionally and personally if you're in full alignment. Because the ultimate end goal of yoga, for those who may not know so much, is about bringing your mental thoughts, your physical being into alignment and displaying an ability to concentrate your total energies and focus, um, whatever that object of your focus may be. Uh, I've been an off and on practitioner for seven, eight years. There are many who are far, far more experienced and more expert than I, but for me, it was a very eye-opening experience um, uh, many years ago when I start, started to first realize that this wasn't a physical discipline, this wasn't about exercise, this also wasn't a spiritual discipline, this was really about uh, a certain lifestyle and a, a way to bring alignment to you know, your full self. And uh, it's benefited me tremendously because it helps me understand how I can use techniques to bring, bring focus in my work every day. One last question. How many times a day do you tweet? And how many Twitter followers do you have? Uh, yeah, modest amount. I mean, it depends. It's all relative. I think I have over 11,000 followers from around the world. Uh, take pride in the fact that as an international person, I have followers in Brazil and India and U.S. and uh, Japan and Korea. It's exciting for me because I travel the world and I like to meet and talk to lots of different people. I probably should tweet more. I don't tweet as much as I'd like to. I have lots of tweets in my head that I can't get out, but um, I want to use it as an opportunity to also emphasize something I think very critical. You can be a great Twitter user and not tweet. It's perfectly okay. I can't imagine how many people, you can't imagine how many people I run into who feel very sheepish about saying they're Twitter users, even if they don't tweet or they tweet very little. And I want everyone to hear me. It is perfectly okay. You're a legitimate Twitter user, even if you don't tweet. In fact, if you put it in context, 
to highlight how silly it is, think about someone feeling equally sheepish about not being a YouTube user because they haven't uploaded a video to YouTube, or feeling like they can't legitimately use Wikipedia because they didn't upload content to Wikipedia. It's silly. Um, so Twitter's great because so many people publish content, and it is a truly democratic publishing platform, but there's nothing wrong in people who want to consume that content and use it almost like their personal newspaper, checking in real time in the morning, at lunch, in the night, what's going on about the things you care about. It's an absolutely appropriate way to use Twitter and one that we would strongly encourage uh, people to explore to help them get over the intimidation of feeling like they have to tweet to use Twitter. It's just a, it's a fallacy that I'm trying to dispel. Well, seriously, it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.